The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the Journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The key um, uh, hormonal secretion that we need to exclude is cortisol because it's the most common hormonal abnormality that we see in benign adrenal tumors. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. This podcast is based upon an article from the January 2022 issue of the Annals of Internal Medicine titled Cardiometabolic Disease Burden and Steroid Excretion in Benign Adrenal Tumors. Joining us on the podcast are two of the senior authors of this paper, Dr. Alessandro Prete, who is at the Institute of Metabolism and Systems Research at the University of Birmingham in the UK. He's a research fellow there. And Dr. Irina Bancos, who is an associate professor of medicine in the Division of Endocrinology at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. We hope you learn a lot from uh, this podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Alessandro and Irina. A delightful paper that the two of you are two of the major authors of. For years, I've been seeing benign adrenal tumors, had no idea that I could even worry about them. And now I'm worried about them and think that there's something that I want to investigate. I'm sure that a lot of listeners are confused by these. So there's some terms that you use in this article that I'd like to make sure that we understand all those terms. And let's just start out with benign adrenal mass. Okay, well, welcome everyone. I will start. I'm glad, Robert, that you learned something new from this article because I certainly think that benign adrenal masses were ignored for too long. <laughs> so what are benign adrenal masses? Well, the majority of adrenal masses are benign and the majority of benign masses are represented by adrenal cortical adenomas. If we look at adults, 50 and older, Probably around 5 to 7% of uh, adults undergoing CT scans would have an adrenal adenoma. So these are not uncommon. Probably all of us are seeing them at least once a week. Okay, so in the article, you uh, divide these masses into NFATS, MAX, type 1 and type 2, and CS. And that sounded like gobbledygook to me. Could you all define what is NAFAT? What is MAX? What's the difference between type 1 and type 2? And how does that relate to CS? Basically, every time we pick up an adrenal tumor, we need to answer two major questions. The first question is whether the mass is benign or malignant. And in this paper, we only included uh, tumors that are benign. So we only focused on a benign disease. Then when we establish that the mass is benign, we need to answer the second question, that is whether or not it produces hormones, because we know that the adrenals are important source of hormone secretion. And the key uh, hormonal secretion that we need to exclude is cortisol, because it's the most common hormonal abnormality that we see in benign adrenal tumors. 
And we exclude cortisol hypersecretion by both clinical assessment. So we assess patients for symptoms of overt cortisol excess that is called the Cushing syndrome. So we look for, for example, facial plethora, uh, proximal myopathy. We look for uh, purple uh, stria, et cetera. And secondly, we test these patients biochemically uh, through the one milligram overnight dexamethasone suppression test, which is a very long name for a very easy test. So basically, we give to these patients one milligram of dexamethasone at night time. And dexamethasone is a very potent glucocorticoid, uh, which uh, would normally suppress endogenous cortisol production. So if we give dexamethasone to to, uh, these patients, we would expect their cortisol levels after taking dexamethasone to be very low or undetectable. However, in patients with benign adrenal tumors who have cortisol excess, we see that the levels of cortisol after taking dexamethasone remain high. And then based on the actual values of cortisol, we can categorize these patients. So for values that are intermediate between 1.8 and 5 micrograms per deciliter, we uh, label these patients as having mild autonomous cortisol secretion possible, that is uh, max 1. Or if the value is above 5, then we label these patients as having definitive mild autonomous cortisol secretion that in in the paper we call max 2. And CS... Yeah, it would be Cushing syndrome. syndrome. So it would be a a combination of patients who have both clinical signs of cortisol excess and an abnormal dexamethasone suppression test. There's a very important point here that I tell learners all the time, and that is the value of using dexamethasone. It is not measured when you measure cortisol. Every other glucocorticoid that we give clinically is measured as cortisol. So that's particularly why you can use a dexamethasone suppression test because it is not picked up by the assay. That's correct. And, and that's actually useful if you have a patient who suspect Addison's who comes in at night and you want to be able to do the test the next day, you can give them dexamethasone and keep them from dying or going into shock, but still be able to do a cortisone suppression test the next day. Okay. What's the motivation for this particular study? Why it's, it's a beautiful study and what were you thinking? What questions did you want to address? Both of us can answer that question. I think I would like to start by saying that the, the term MAX, mild autonomous cortisol secretion, is not such an old term. Only several years ago, this condition was called subclinical Cushing syndrome. And I think both myself and Alessandra agree that the term subclinical is not the right way to characterize patients with MAX because they actually do have a lot of uh, clinical problems. So that leads me to the motivation for this study. We really needed to characterize that cardiometabolic burden in patients with MAX to tell the world the consequences of MAX could be dire. It could not only cardiovascular risk, but that also leads to mortality. Yes, and another reason why we thought that uh, a study like this was important is that is that despite being a very common condition, up until now, most of the evidence was coming from relatively small studies 
most of them retrospective. Whilst through this study, we were able to set up a very large um, multi-center prospective study, which allowed us not only to characterize these patients from a clinical point of view, but as part of the study, they were also collecting 24-hour um, urine samples that we analyzed uh, by mass spectrometry to look at uh, several hormones in their urine related to cortisol so that we could correlate their clinical findings to the extent of cortisol excess that we looked that we found in the urine. So I, I really like this and let me see if I can put it into slightly different words. Too often we think about diseases as either being there or not being there. And what you're really looking at is gradation of cortisol excess. And at some point in time, it becomes the full-blown Cushing syndrome. But before it becomes that, there still may be impacts. And what you're trying to understand is what's the likelihood of clinical impacts, both morbidity and mortality, at lower levels that are not suppressed, but not high enough to make the criteria for Cushing syndrome. I'm not putting words in your mouth, am I? No, no, that, that's entirely correct. So, of course, we, uh, we had in the study patients with Cushing syndrome, and it came as no surprise that they had a significantly increased cardiometabolic risk. But what really surprised us was that also patients who previously, was, as Irina was saying, were labeled as having a subclinical disease actually had a significantly higher cardiometabolic risk. And as you were saying, Robert, we indeed see that there's a continuum over a spectrum that goes from patients with tumors that we label as non-functioning, but probably there is already something going on uh, there in, in terms of cardiometabolic risk that then can progress over time to uh, mild autonomous cortisol secretion. And then the higher the degree of cortisol excess, then the higher the cardiometabolic risk. So let's talk about who the patients are who have these tumors. In your study, we have gender, we have age. I did not find any racial data. People in the U.S. always want to know whether there's a difference with race, even though race is an anthropological and social issue. But anyway, it's often useful in studies like this. But are these men or women? How old are they? Can you give us a sense of who we're dealing with? So first, I think it's important to note that uh, this was a prospective study of patients with adrenal incident teloma that were enrolled in a variety of adrenal centers in Europe and in, in the United States. So those are the consecutive patients that would come and see an endocrinologist. So we ended up with 1,305 patients with uh, adrenal adenomas of whom 649 had non-functioning adrenal adenoma, 451 had MAX1, 140 MAX2, and 65 had adrenal cushings. Majority were women. Um, overall, the percentage of women was 67%. And actually the high was uh, cortisol, the more likely that adrenal adenoma was uh, occurring in a woman. As far as race, um, I'm not sure if Alessandro has more information. I can um, say that at least in two centers, 92% were whites and 8% were non-whites. But I believe that we've been uh, limited by the ANSET database as far as race collection. 
Yes, that's correct. So we don't have full data regarding the uh, ethnic distribution within our study, but it's something that we are looking at for other studies that are going on at the moment. So hopefully we will be able to answer the questions regarding uh, differences in uh, ethnicity and clinical outcomes very soon. And what are the average ages of the people who get referred to an endocrinologist for an incidental adrenal mass? Adrenal tumors tend to be uh, diagnosed usually uh, after the age of 40. This, this is where we have the major bulk of patients that come through the door of the endocrinologist. And most of patients with benign uh, adrenal tumors tend to be over the age of 50. And in our study, the median age was around 60. Then the older you are, the more likely you are to be diagnosed with mandatonous cortisol secretion. On the contrary, patients with Cushing syndrome tend to be much younger. So it looks like we are dealing with two very different types of disease, which are both characterized by cortisol excess, but they have very different demographics. I'd like to add to that that it's really two things here. One of uh, the things is that we do get adrenal adenomas. I mean, the, the older we are, the more likely we are to get adrenal adenoma. But the second is that these are incidentally discovered lesion on imaging, and we're just much more likely to get a CT scan when we are older. So I think it's important to consider because we don't know for how long these patients had those adenomas. It may right. be for 20 years. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the results. If you could define cardiometabolic disease and tell us what the results are when you compare uh, these, I guess, four different groups. We have the non-functioning, we have the uh, MAC1, we have the MAC2, and then obviously the Cushing's. Basically, we uh, looked at um, hardcore clinical outcomes. So we looked at whether or not these patients had hypertension, whether or not they were diagnosed with type 2 diabetes and with dyslipidemia. And then we, do, we did a subgroup analysis of patients with hypertension and type 2 diabetes, and we looked at the severities of this condition. Specifically, in patients with hypertension, we looked at how many required three or more antihypertensives, and in patients with type 2 diabetes, how many of those were requiring insulin. So basically what we found, we used the group of patients with no functioning uh, tumors as our reference. And then we compared the prevalence of cardiometabolic disease of the other classes, MAX1, MAX2, and Cushing's to the non-functioning tumors. And what we found is that overall patients with uh, MAX and uh, Cushing's had a significantly increased risk of hypertension and patients with MAX2 and Cushing's were those carrying the highest risk. Moreover, patients with MAX2 and Cushing's were also more likely to require three or more antihypertensives. In terms of type 2 diabetes, we found a significantly increased risk only in patients with Cushing's. However, even though the risk in uh, patients with MAX was not significant after adjustment for um, possibly confounding variables, we saw that patients with MAX2 and type 2 diabetes were significantly more likely or more, almost twice as likely to require insulin to uh, achieve an adequate glucose control. 
On the other hand, we didn't see much of a difference in terms of prevalence of dyslipidemia in any of the groups. I noticed that uh, in the study, you excluded aldosterone production. Was that a separate test? How did you do the aldosterone exclusion? Yes, we've excluded uh, patients with uh, primary aldosteroneness. So sometimes we could definitely see both max and primary aldosterones in this. So the testing is uh, definitely different to diagnose primary aldosterones. We would usually start with a morning aldosterone and renin or renin plasma activity. And if that case detection testing is positive, we may have to proceed with confirmatory studies. The reason that we've excluded primary aldosteronism is mainly because we're dealing with a totally different hormone here, aldosterone, which actually leads to some similar outcomes we were looking at, uh, mainly hypertension, especially resistant hypertension. There's um, there also a lot of data showing a link between primary aldosterones to some of the other comorbidities we've been trying to connect to Max, and we just wanted to have a clean cohort of patients with Max to answer this question. But I think there is a lot of interest right now in the world looking at Max uh, combined with primary aldosteroneness. So maybe in the future. And did you find some of those in the screening in the study? Yes, I actually do not recall the exact uh, prevalence of combined max and primary aldosterones. Do you recall, Alessandro? I don't remember the exact numbers, but uh, if we look at the literature, like around 15 to 20% of patients who are eventually diagnosed with primary aldosteronism will have an abnormal dexamethasone suppression test result. Then depending on the criteria you use to define cortisol excess, the percentage may vary. But there is an increasing body of evidence that suggests that a significant amount of patients with primary aldosteronism, we also have some degree of cortisol excess. On this podcast, we've discussed primary aldosteronism quite a bit. And uh, I find this interesting because we're dealing both with glucocorticoids and mineralocorticoids. They're both made in the adrenal glands. And I would assume that some of the adenomas uh, are producing mineralocorticoids, some glucocorticoids, and some both. And that, that, that would just seem to be logical. So what we know now is that as we go from MAX1 to MAX2, we see more and more uh, complications from having these higher uh, unsuppressible glucocorticoid levels. And obviously Cushing's has the most severe, but we've known that for a long time. This is, a, this is an interesting study because you have to have had a CT scan first. So you had to find that they had these uh, benign tumors. Where's this field going? So, so I want, what I want the two of you to, to tell us is what are the implications of this study in the short run? And where do you think this field is moving towards? So I can probably start. So this question is a very good question. It probably would require a new podcast because <laughs> we, we have lots of ideas and we are very excited of uh, the next steps in terms of uh, uh, research in the short and long term. So uh, I think the first question that we need to answer is, so one of the limitations of all the studies that have been conducted so far, and unfortunately also of these studies, that we always use patients with no functioning tumors as a control, okay? But really, we don't know very well how uh, these patients compare to the general population itself. So the ideal uh, study would be to compare 
a group of patients with adrenal tumor to patients who definitely do not have an adrenal tumor and combine them for other demographics and make them comparable and then really see what's the uh, increased cardiometabolic outcome. So that for me would be one of the key priorities to, to look at. Secondly, of course, now that with the study, we have established what's the increased risk of uh, cardiometabolic disease. We want to understand how cortisol excess is causing this cardiometabolic risk. And the third point would be to understand how we can tackle this increased cardiometabolic risk. Do these patients just need to be followed up over time? And do we need to only monitor and treat their comorbidities? Or do these patients uh, benefit from a definitive treatment? Might be surgery, i.e. the removal of the renal tumor, or a medical treatment to counteract the effects of the cortisol excess. So this would be the, uh, some of the key areas that I see the research going forward. I guess I would add to that. First, I completely agree with everything that Alessandro just mentioned. So I'm trying just to think about some of the things he didn't. And what comes to mind is, number one, I actually feel we still have a lot of work to do as far as how max or cortisol um, abnormality from this adrenal adenoma affects us. Clearly, some emerging data suggest that it's not just glucose metabolism, hypertension, and dyslipidemia that it leads to. There are also some other consequences. For example, we've previously shown that patients with max are more frail. So this uh, concept of max causing accelerated aging in the pretty big proportion of adults um, in the world is, to me, something to explore farther, <laughs> something worth exploring farther. And the second thing is, I think right now we're pretty good at understanding what max does to patients um, as a group, but we're still not very good at identifying which one of these people would benefit from aggressive intervention early on. So the current state of uh, practice is really, let's be convinced this patient suffers from max, let's follow this person along. And if we see that this max does impact this patient's health, only then we intervene. And I'm hoping that with more data and more studies in the future, we would be able to predict who that patient with Max, um, who would actually have those heart attacks and who would become frail or who would develop severe diabetes before they do that. So we can remove this adrenal mass and prevent it. This has been fascinating. And now I'm wondering, and, and this is the last, and uh, I'd love a short answer on this. We get a lot of CT scans. I work in the hospital. And if I get a CT scan, I now see uh, what looks like a benign adrenal mass. Sh should I do a dexamethasone suppression test on them? Absolutely. <laughs> okay, so that's the answer. Do a dexamethasone suppression test. And if it's abnormal, and abnormal would be <clears throat> more than 1.5, is that correct? 1.8. 1.8. More than 1.8. Then call my uh, friendly endocrinologist and say, I think I've just diagnosed max in a benign adrenal tumor, and let's see what they say. Yes, and I think actually the biggest problem right now in the world is that only minority of patients with adrenal adenoma get tested. Yeah. So there is very little discussion about max because we don't know that the person has max. So yes, friendly endocrinologist. Thanks to both of y'all for uh, joining us on this podcast. You've really opened up a whole area 
that uh, has puzzled uh, all of us for a long time and you've made us think, and that's the best thing that can possibly happen uh, in an article in the Annals of Internal Medicine is it makes you think. It was a pleasure. Very much. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This fascinating study of what we often call incidentalomas, that is benign adrenal tumors, has helped me understand that many of these tumors produce either glucocorticoids or mineralocorticoids. They're more common in women. While we need to screen for both uh, aldosterone excess and glucocorticoid excess, this paper focused mostly on the finding of increased glucocorticoids that did not reach the level of Cushing syndrome, but could be clinically important. In the future, I plan to screen patients with incidentalomas for both aldo and glucocorticoid secretion. Thank you for listening to this fascinating podcast. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.